everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. My name's Sophie. And my name is Simon. And today we're sitting down with Ryan Sirs, graduate of Penn State and the Scripps Research Institute. Ryan is also a former founder of research company Akeagen and currently leads a new startup called Revagenics. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, after you earned your bachelor's degree at Penn State and a PhD at the Scripps Research Institute, you went to work at Cajun for 12 years. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there? Uh, yeah, where to begin? Um, so Cajun was really birthed you know, from my graduate work, uh, and it really started about a year into my PhD work. So a, a lot of my doctorate work was actually kind of watching the company be birthed uh, and then collaborating and then eventually joining as an employee. Um, so I got to the company when it had been operating for about three or four years already um, and really just got a, a crash course in infectious disease and just drug discovery in general. Got a lot of great opportunities to uh, to learn that field and also just work in a lot of different disciplines. That kind of startup mentality of, you know, whatever needs to get done, you better go do it. doesn't matter what your specialty is. Um, and then really finished up uh, as the vice president of research leading a pretty large team working on the pipeline and then spending a lot of my time since the team was busy finding the new drugs, really trying to learn, you know, everyone else's business. <laughs> what was the commercial team doing? What was the manufacturing team doing? Um, what were the what were the FDA thinking at that time? Uh, and then really starting at the end, seeing that we were going to be in some serious financial trouble because of the dynamics we can talk about today. Um, what is the government going to do about it? And I think we're still, you know, in the middle of that part of the story now. So what made you want to go into developing antibiotics in the first place? Uh, you know, like all things, I think I, I more bounced around to opportunity and people I was drawn to, uh, to be frank. And so the professor I worked for at Scripps was just someone I really wanted to work for. Uh, the project was really interesting, uh, looking at how bacteria evolve resistance to fluoroquinolones. That led to the company. And then, of course, I was very interested in kind of following what we started. Um, so I think it was much more organic. Uh, of course, always wanted to work on important medical problems. Um, so that's at the root. Um, and why antibiotics, it just sort of, that's just the way things fell out. <laughs> why I'm still in them is, you know, there's few people left with the kind of depth of understanding we need to keep the pipeline moving. Um, and the few people that are left kind of see what's coming and just kind of can't let go. Uh, mm -hmm. Even though it'd be a way easier choice to just switch fields and work on something else. <laughs> Yeah, so going off of that, when Acajan went bankrupt, a lot of news outlets called it worrisome for the development of antibiotics. So could you tell us about some of the ramifications of Acajan shutting down, both personally and across the industry? Yeah, I mean, there were actually three bankruptcies in the field, but ours got the most attention. I think partly because um, we had led, uh, even though we're a small organization for most of our history, we we're probably about 50 employees at the end, 300, but still small. Um, you know, a lot of the work we did with the FDA to reform how we developed these new drugs uh, was we were out in front on a lot of it. Um, and so I think at least to some people, we were looked at as, a, you know, a, a top shelf organization. Um, and so it was a little bit disturbing, right, when you see that that company go under. Um, but actually, in retrospect, it makes total economic sense. And that's really uh, shining a light on that was sort of the last year uh, and carrying that to an organization to try to help explain, like, well, how is this possible? You have a drug that literally has every accolade the federal government can award it, yet it bankrupted you trying to sell it. <laughs> how exactly did you guys end up in bankruptcy? Like, can you walk me through the process from start to finish? Like, when did you have the realization and kind of what ha what happened? What was the fallout? Yeah, I mean... One of the difficult things is all, all drugs, even once FDA approved, lose money before they make money. 
And the confidence that you're going to make a lot of money uh, lets people let you lose that money. Uh, the moment that confidence collapses, everything breaks. Um, so if you are, you know, a, a Roche or Merck, and you have a product that's losing money before it makes money, it, you can pay for that with your own revenue from your other products. Uh, if you're a startup or, you know, we were a very mature company, but still a non-revenue generating company, there's only one way to bridge that gap. You got to, well, two, you can sell stock or you could borrow money. Um, but the moment the perception of your value collapses, you your only ability to raise money is based on what people believe you're worth. Um, so if you go out to the NASDAQ and search a company and they're worth a billion dollars, they could feasibly raise $200 million. Um, if we're suddenly worth $200 million, we can only raise you know $40 million and that's not going to get anything done. And so I think it became pretty catalytic quickly when the market capitalizations of the public companies started to fall. It meant that they were trapped where there's no physical way to raise money. And then that's how you go bankrupt, right? You can't pay your bills. How expensive, just to get an idea, how expensive is it to raise money to put a drug forward and get through the full FDA approval process and then to market? Yeah. So, you know, you know the estimates now, and this is just for the product that works. Of course, people are always trying to throw in the, <laughs> you have to fund the failures too um, with the successes. But, you know, you're talking about a half billion to a, a billion dollars which is not too bad, right? <laughs> not too bad. <laughs> Jeez. Um, you know, we. I think a lot of the work we did at Occasion made that less, it will be less expensive now. I think there's a more There's more clarity um, how to get there. It's still going to be hundreds of millions of dollars, but I think the real thing that caught us all, myself included, and, and the field, because once we, we did a two-hour um, boot camp that's on YouTube about this whole, how the actual thesis was, um, what is a, FDA approved drug antibiotic worth at the with all the costs for the trials and the phase waved off. It's free. Uh, and the answer was minus $420 million. That's what it, <laughs> that's how much in the hole you go before you start to climb out the other side um, for these products. So I think the expenses that happen immediately after you're approved, everyone thinks about the money you'll make selling the drug, but the expenses actually are never higher than after you're approved because um, you're starting to turn from a research organization to a commercial mm -hmm. manufacturer. Uh, and manufacturing is incredibly expensive. Um, and so so those are the types of expenses that um, everyone centers on the phase three study with the pivotal that gets you registered. That's not the end of the road. In fact, the road gets harder after that. And then our problem was you can't generate enough money selling these drugs to make up for that. So now you serve as the CEO of Revagenics. On your website, you state that your mission is to track the emergence of diseases where there's a high unmet medical need and leverage groundbreaking science to discover and develop potential treatments. Could you elaborate on what you do at Revgenics? Doesn't that tell you everything? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're pretty much continuing the mission of what I was doing at a cage. Um, I think for our first couple of years, there wasn't a big point in making a big deal over what we were doing because nobody mm -hmm. invests in this space anyways. And so I think we sort of stayed a little quiet. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I think we need to probably update that, that mission at this point. But we're really carrying on. Um, you can imagine so... The drug that reached approval that's commercial, it is available yep. in the U.S., was bought by uh, an Indian generics company. So they own the worldwide rights. They bought that out of the bankruptcy. Um, but all of the pipeline, the next generation of drugs that was supposed to be, you know, we got to, this is a never ending process. Like the second we pick something, we take it to the clinic. We already know it will fail eventually. Mm -hmm. And what's the next thing we need? Um, those pipeline programs were sitting in that estate. And so that was what I went and purchased and brought into the new company. Um, so it's kind of a chance to 
take a breath, start over, and see if we can do this a little bit more uh, efficiently, smarter, and also try to get the rules changed at the end, right? How do we get the government to fix this problem now that they believe the one upside of the bankruptcy, despite it being personally very damaging as well, is it got people's attention that we weren't lying. This is really a problem. It's not about greedy pharmaceutical companies. It's about economic uh, sustainability of these products and how are we going to fix it, people? If I get to the end again and we still haven't fixed it, then I might have to give up. <laughs> I figured two times is okay, right? What's that, 32 years then? Yeah. <laughs> so the problem in and of itself is just it taking too long and going too financially into the hole before you see any sort of fruition from the product, right? Yeah, and, and the hole's not that deep. The hole's normal-sized, if not small. Um, the problem is the, the, the fill. <laughs> the revenues are too small. You just cannot... Um, generate enough revenue selling these products. And so, um, and there's various institutional and architectural reasons why, um, but, but so you have this thing that costs kind of what all drugs cost, and then you have almost no money. Like, let's put it, for example, all of the new agents that, that came out in their first year sold maybe a few million dollars worth of drug, and they're burning a hundred million dollars. Like that's not, if Apple was operating its business like that, right, it wouldn't be in business very long, right? And so that it's really on that revenue side. And, and I think that workshop was really focused on kind of demonstrating the costs were normal. This isn't salespeople flying around the world and taking doctors to steak dinners. This is running pediatric trials, which are a legal requirement for any drug approved you know, by the FDA uh, for antibiotics. And then, of course, you're manufacturing your supply chain. So we really tried to focus on the things that everyone agrees has to be done after approval, and they cost you know, $400 million, and your revenue is $1 million, that doesn't work. Um, so how do we fix that? Um, how has the ongoing pandemic impacted your job, if at all? Uh, it made it easy because we were already working virtually to try to be incredibly lean. Um, I guess one of the things I benefit from is, is having, you know, over a decade working at kind of a leader in the field is all the network of subcontract CROs, collaborators that we could use to move the science forward without having our own large lab. Um, so we were, my team was already working kind of virtually and remotely in July, 2019. So when COVID hit, everyone else was doing that too. So it made it very easy to kind of look normal, <laughs> but we were actually already kind of trying to develop this, um, remotely simply just to keep, you know, costs as low as we could. Um, you know, lab space in the San Francisco Bay area isn't exactly cheap. Um, I think we'll start to look at that as we come out of COVID, mm -hmm. but the easiest answer was that was useful. The other part was we were also trying to fundraise during the market crash in 2020, which was not easy. Um, uh, but like all things, you know, eventually you, you work through the other side of it and we were able to raise financing to, to get the business moving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, outside of the difficulties of the pandemic, could you talk a little bit about any potential, um, personal challenges that you've faced working in an industry where the fruits of your labor doesn't really materialize for a long time, if at all. I mean, that I will say going into science proper was one reason I thought to myself, I will never work on drugs, right? I'll work on biofuels or something else because it just takes too long. Um, I don't know. Maybe you just get old and you're patient then. <laughs> <laughs> but there's these interesting problems in front of you every day. Like this afternoon, it was a chemistry problem. Like, how are we going to solve this? And if we solve this, we get to the next step, and then we're going to make a drug. And I think you just, it's not that hard to get your mind into that mindset. And I think with time and age, you just are like, it's not that big a deal if we're not in the clinic till 2023. That's not that long from now. Whereas when I was in grad school, that was an eternity. Um, but it's a fair point that that's something. Um, but there's just some working on a drug and knowing that drug's on the market, even when it's generic, the, the greatest benefit from the products I work on will come when they're generic. Mm -hmm. 
because that's when the you know the disease will have spread and there'll be millions of people. And the idea that you could be dead and gone and that bag could still be sitting on the pharmacy shelf saving someone's life, that's incredibly motivating. And it gets pretty easy to not think too much about, oh, this could take a really long time. <laughs> so what are some other big lessons that you've learned either through Rohidic Hygen or through uh, Revogenics? Well, so just broadly, um, I mean, a million lessons, maybe. How many stuck? Um, I mean, the one thing, so I'm an absolute scientist at my core. That's my training. That's what I love. But you can't be naive to the, the environment that you're trying to operate in as a scientist, right? And so, you know, I kind of refuse to going back and trying to do this again, eyes wide open, what the problems are and how we have to get them solved. Um, I mean, that was obviously a big deal for me. Um, the, the title for the talk later is, you know, when unmet need isn't enough. Um, because generally in biotech, you don't have to think really hard about, if there's an unmet medical need, it's fine. And you solve the problem, there'll be, the company will survive and you'll be rewarded. Um, this was a case where we did that and we, everything went haywire. Um, and so, you know, I think not being naive about that, but, um, you know, I really look forward to the, the intense amount of cross-functional training, thinking about like really understanding the basic research, getting a number of years to kind of run the pipeline and then seeing that fixing this is really just math and economics and it's not really that hard. And if we fix it, we fix it for the whole world, hopefully. Um, if the U.S. can lead here. Um, so, you know, those things are motivating. Um, but I guess the, the main thing is, um, you know, ne never giving up. You know, obviously, I love science. I want to think about those problems. Those are the problems that I could stay up all night looking at data and thinking. Um, but, but being aware that there's a larger world out there that has to be satisfied to make that science make an impact, I think, is something I won't let go now. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, biotech and science, obviously, is it, it feels like you can look in any direction you can, you know, see a problem at face value and that's something that you want to fix. How do you decide what you want to work on and what direction you want to take your company in? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, obviously for us, a lot of the motivation was just finishing what we started. We, we were already halfway down the road on something we thought was particular drugs that we thought were really meaningful for patients. Um, and so it was pretty easy to just pick right back up where we started. How to do it? how to do it and not have the same outcome. That was the really like a couple of Phil's coffee sessions of like <laughs> on a napkin. Oh, and save all your ar ar archeological items. The first startup, I kind of didn't think about it. This one, I'm like every funny napkin and crayon drawing we have <laughs> <laughs> of how we're gonna pull this off, I saved because it's just too funny to look back at it. Um, but I mean, for me, it was like, the, the one thing about the drug we got approved in 2018 was it took way longer than it should have because we had to change the way that the drugs are developed while we were doing it. Now that road is paved and I want to use it again and I want to use it for an even bigger, even better thing. Um, so that temptation to just jump right back in was was that was easy. The hard part was how do we convince ourselves we won't have the same outcome? And that is a little bit of the secret sauce of what we're doing. But it's also just, you know, we're also I, I do think the occasion bankruptcy will trigger change. Um, we can't just count on that because um, it's not like we, we didn't have Washington, D.C.'s attention on this seven years ago we did and they still didn't pass something this might be the catalyst um we now had a pandemic that doesn't actually make it a no-brainer we fixed this problem though mm -hmm. you, everyone thinks that they're like oh the pandemic now they'll finally fix the amr thing and it's not obvious that you know that will happen um it's going to still be a fight so what advice would you give to students who want to do what you do both on the research side and the entrepreneurial side um let's see well, what I do. So, I mean, 
Can you elaborate that a little bit? Give me a little bit more of a lead on that. (laughs) Yeah, I guess like say students want to enter the biotech industry and in drug development, uh, but they're not really sure where to start and they're not really sure if they want to have a strictly research position. Like how would you advise them on that? I mean, just get started. (laughs) Don't overthink it, I guess. Yeah. Um, I didn't know I wanted to work in antibiotics, and I probably would have had a really fun career doing something else. Um, Fate made it this way, and I really am happy for it, but um, I wouldn't overthink it. If you find great people to work with, especially your manager, right, or or a PI you want to follow, um, just go there. But then just overperform at everything, right? (laughs) Work really hard. Try to learn. Don't be afraid to, you know, stick your nose in places as long as you're getting your day job done. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think you kind of just have to find your way and don't overthink it. Um, too many people have a path set and sometimes you almost feel like they're force fitting what they're doing to what they think they were supposed to do because they had this plan from when they were in high school or, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, so I will say it's, it's an interesting in biotech. Obviously I'm in the Bay area. I didn't grow up there, but I came out to California for the, for the, for those reasons to be Mm -hmm. in the hubs. And, um, it is challenging to not be in there. Um, we can just get together so quickly. I can, I live halfway between Palo Alto and San Francisco. So you go down and get some money, go up, get some people and you <laughs> and it, it's not like it can't be other places, but biotech's tough. Cause you don't, you can't just build chemistry labs, you know, yeah. in the middle of Wyoming and I mean, you can, but, um, and you need a critical mass of people because then there's confidence that I don't care if this company goes away. Cause it's normal for almost every company to go away mm-hmm. and it can be a bad outcome go away or it can be a great outcome go away but you're going to need to do something else. And so there's that ecosystem you kind of have to be a part of. Um, that is a somewhat of a challenge. And with um, students, I, so I went to school in central Pennsylvania to undergraduate and they're isolated. It's mm-hmm. tough. You know, I'm like, you're probably going to have to take the plunge and move to Boston and just take a chance. And um, that is one thing that I, I always uh, empathize with. Uh, it doesn't mean you couldn't find something somewhere else, but it is tough. And then once you're in those hubs, you're sort of like, can't go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so obviously you mentioned you're in the Bay for the purpose of, you know, it being a technological hub. Uh, you said you're a scientist at your core. I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit more information on how you got into the entrepreneurship side and kind of how did you build your business acumen? How did you, you know, figure out how to do the science, but also do the business and push your products in front of politicians and in front of investors? Um. I think always at the root, just being a scientist that cares about the problem and and speaking passionately about what you feel, I mean, that's all you really need. And then you just sort of get practice getting feedback on that or getting brushed aside or pushed aside in D.C. or wherever you are. Um, But, you know, I think, you know, as you start to grow as a scientist, you I mean, I I meet a lot of scientists kind of mid-career. They're like, how do I get a different degree to get out of the get off the bench as quickly as possible? (laughs) And I love the bench. I mean, I. It's like the most fun thing. You get to do real <laughs> stuff. Um, but I think ultimately you start to lead teams, right, of scientists. And then maybe you start to lead projects and eventually lead companies. And it, it, it can happen organically. I think with some few exceptions, like if you want to be a chief financial officer, go get an MBA and go to get a CPA. But um, leadership in science, you do not need those things, right? And then the truth is I don't have the business acumen. I need to run the entire business. I have a really amazing chief operating officer who does. And so knowing who I needed to go get is is, you know, part of the strategy. So um, I have enough, but, you know, I need lots of help and I, I know the people I need to, to get that done. But I would say you can just do your science and 
you get really good at something and then the next thing you get asked is, hey, can you teach this other person that something? Can you teach two people that? Okay, can you run this group for me? Okay. <laughs> and it, it can happen that way. You don't have to go get like a business degree to complement it, to suddenly escape from the, the clutches of the dungeon, dungeon laboratory. <laughs> so unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And to our listeners, stay hungry. 